This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Wales, with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob. Good good morning, evening, afternoon, and uh, and good midnight. So, last week, when we left our, uh, our ship... They all had sore heads. I uh, think they all had hangovers to... To beat all hangovers. Uh, no, except for people like Mr. Midshipman Mason, who was uh, very much um, denigrating those people who had uh, gone on an, an epic bender. So just to do a, a bit of a reprise from last week, the crew of the Shenandoah, 150 years ago today, managed to take the whaling ship um, Abigail, which for some reason was loaded to the gunwales with, with alcohol. It seemed to have uh, about ten times as much booze on board as whale oil. As, as anybody would want, yes. So, um, but now, so that proved to be a very um, exciting, well, by exciting, um, uh, embarrassing and um, drunken uh, four days. So, um, uh, poor old Mr. Midshipman Mason, um, who has been given the task over the last few months of making the grog for the men. And I think it's a pretty good, pretty good um, supposition that you give the task of making the grog to the guy who's not going to be knocking it back himself. He could have had a whole cocktail bar after the uh, capture of the Abigail, though, couldn't he? Or the, the crew could have been lining up and saying what they wanted. You know, I'll have a Tom Collins, I'll have a gin sling, and so on. Uh, pro- probably back in those days, you would have had a, a brandy and hot water, and especially since or a toddy, um, a toddy. Especially since uh, Mason has been reading lots of Charles Dickens. Uh, in Charles Dickens, they drink brandy and hot water on very, very numerous occasions, which in fact would, I think, would go down a treat in the Ockhot Sea. Now, it also have something called a brandy flip, and I don't know what a brandy flip quite was, except it involved a poker. Okay. A hot poker. A hot, a, poker? A hot poker. I think it was the, the equivalent of you know how these days you'll stick a hot poker in a pint of real ale to to do something to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> not in my experience, okay. but anyway, not in your experience. Um, and of course, our poor Lieutenant Whittle, um, who has been making great play all the voyage about you know being a natural disciplinarian and you know he doesn't care if the men fear him so long as they respect him well he had several days there where they they neither respected nor feared him there was a lot of gagging and tricing going on yes and 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 irons irons people get irons. even got to the point where one of the actual officers had to be disciplined uh, yes, but, nah, but but he was not. He was neither. So that was uh, Mr. Debney Minor Scales. His his name never gets old. It does have to be true. Um, but uh, so he was. But he was not gagged and triced because he was an officer. So um, there was some terrible punishment that that happened to him. He was just relieved of duty for several days. Tell me, uh, just remind the listener, Rob, 
What did he actually do? Because it doesn't sound all that egregious to me, given what the, the rest of the crew seemed to have been uh, pinching great flagons and barrels of booze. Well, he just pinched a, a moderately sized... A beaker, a, I think a, it was described. A beaker. A beaker of whiskey. Where the great offence was, though, was to, to Mr. to Mr. Whittle, who is the, the first officer, was the fact that uh, Officer Minor Scales was one of the southern officers. He was actually a gentleman from the south. That's yes. that's what offended him so much about this. But we must move on. Yes. So we're, we're way up in the Atosk Sea. Yes. It's, it's cold. Yes. They're looking for whalers. And, well, they've captured one that doesn't seem to have much whale oil, oil on board. Uh, so they keep heading north. Now, now we, we might actually go go into a bit about conditions in the Okhotsk Sea because yep. um, it isn't isn't Google wonderful? So basically, I did a search on um, I'm going to endeavour to say this. Um, no doubt, um, natives of Siberia who who listen to this podcast will can get on and criticise my my pronunciation, but. Um, Okay, so this is currently the weather in Juzno Kurilsk, Sakhalin, in the Kuril Islands in, in Russia. Um, and it is at the moment that. I, I, I once again do apologise to all of our Siberian listeners for that pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. It could have been completely fine, for, for all you know. True. I have to say, I will be very glad when we leave the Okhot Sea and I then never have to say <laughs> Okhot Sea again. Again, I have. Anyway. At the moment, up in the Okhot Sea, it is 61 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, in, in Celsius, it's 16 degrees. Now, now fine, it's, it's the middle of summer, but here in um, beautiful and indeed really quite sunny Blackburn South, in Australia, which is renowned as being a place that's very hot. In the Southern Hemisphere, I'll point out, yeah, so the it, seasons are reversed. Yes, so, so it is in fact getting on for the middle of winter here, but it's 12.3 Celsius here. So basically it is um, colder in Melbourne than it is in Siberia. Now, now the, the, the thing about that, though, is that... Um, oh, I, I was having a look at Sea of Okhotsk weather and uh, found a, something from the cli- climate hot map from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mm-hmm. And there are problems in the Sea of Okhotsk, so I'll, I'll quote from... Um, www.climatehotmap.org Global Warming Location Sea of Okhotsk. Um, the Sea of Okhotsk is the summering ground for the North Pacific right whale, one of the most endangered whales of Earth, and the nearby Kuril Islands are home to more than 30 other species of marine mammals. Warming temperatures are curbing the formation of sea ice and inhibiting the normal rates at which surface water brings oxygen down to deeper depths. These changes are placing pressures on marine life throughout the region. Uh, Since the 1950s, the oxygen content of the Sea of Okhotsk has declined by nearly 15%. Oh, dear. So um, this is actually going to become uh, quite obvious in uh, our discussion today that climactic conditions 150 years ago were obviously different. Because yes. our, our, crew is, our, our crew is, our crew is, there was no declining sea ice. No, years. clearly not. Now, crew is quite concerned about that. But before they get uh, concerned about the sea ice, they're concerned about a ship that they yes. see uh, on the horizon. And there's a bit of 
controversy this time as to what the ship is. Well, now, you see, on, on one side of this controversy, uh, there is uh, Captain Waddell and there is First Lieutenant Whittle, as in the commanders of the ship. Oh, and, 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 and let us point out that given that they don't ever seem to agree on anything, anything it's, all, it's yeah. quite unusual that they are both in accord that what they can see is a brig. Is a brig. Okay. And, and on the other side is, of course, Mr. Midshipman Mason, who I, I am convinced has a, a captain's tricorn hat in his, uh, <laughs> in his sea chest and uh, yeah, really thinks that uh, people should perhaps listen to him a little bit more. But um, so, so um, now, which side of the story do you want to tell first, Michael? So we're, we're talking about the, the controversial events of Sunday, June the 4th, 1865. So we... Well, essentially, they see a ship on, on, on the horizon and they've got to decide whether to chase it or not. Yep. If it's a, if it's a whaler, uh, a Yankee whaler, of course, they want to get after it. If it's not a Yankee ship, then um, they don't need to chase it. And given the climactic conditions, the sea ice and things like that, it's it's a decision that they have to make. And it essentially comes down to, is what they can see a bark or a brig? And yes. a brig has two masts, okay. and a bark has three masts. Okay. So that's essentially what the argument boils down to. And the reason why this is important is they all know that there are no Yankee whaling ships that are brigs. Okay, that's just something everybody knows. So that's what everybody knows. If it's a if it's if it's a brig, then there's no point chasing after it. Okay, and I believe if it's a brig, then that points to it being a Dutchman. It's a Dutchman, yes. So yes. so the Dutchmen are obviously up there too, uh, perhaps after Wales. But Well that that also means that somebody like Mason can say, well if if, if that's a brig then I'm a Dutchman. And, uh, and, and no doubt he did. And no doubt he did. So that's 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 pretty much what the argument came down to. Now visibility is very good because the uh, the air is so clear. Yep. So the ship is probably a long way away. Yeah. But it is so far away that it's quite hard to pick out exactly what it is. And for once, we have the captain and the first officer in agreement that it's a two-masted brig. Okay, well, no, no. Hold, hold our, hold our source, source okay. number one. Riff, a doing today. a bit of uh, riffling of the pages again. So this is from uh, the Shenandoah, a memorable cruise, which we've got so much mileage out of uh, over the course of our podcast. Yeah, it's been a very helpful resource. I'm just riffling the pages here at the microphone. Uh, so Mr Whittle writes that this afternoon we saw a vessel to Wynwood but made it out to be a brig, and as there are no American brigs used as whalers... We did not make chase, supposing him to be a Dutchman. And I think the other important thing to note there is the ship that they saw was uh, to windward, which means they'd have to sail up against the wind to get okay. after it. Well, I mean, that, that's why they have a steam engine, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. Which, they, which interestingly, um, given what's going to happen next over the next few days, doesn't seem to get a mention. Perhaps it's too cold to use it. I've, I've no idea. But they decide not to chase the, the ship... Um, Mr. Mason has another view, I believe. Oh, oh, yes, yes. And how they could ignore their midshipmen when it came to this. Okay, so it, it starts It starts the same. So, on Friday last, we saw another sail but did not give chase. This is on Sunday, June the 4th. We were under short sail at the time and it was blowing fresh. 
The captain thought the ship in question was a brig, and as the Yankees have no vessels of the class, he did not give chase, not wishing to speak to a foreigner or to be known by one, which, which, which is another point, that they don't want to, to spread um, knowledge of their, of their presence throughout the Ocot Sea. Uh, back, to, back to Mr Mason. I have my doubts about the propriety of this, for it was by no means certain that the ship we saw was not an American. Indeed, most of those who saw her insisted on her being a bark. There is a master's mate on board by the name of Minor. Now, again, sorry, this is not um, Lieutenant Minor. Minor Scales, yes. Minor Scales. Who was a mate on board one of the ships captured by the Alabama. He shipped before the mast on board of that vessel and afterwards was made master's mate by Captain Sims. This person has been whaling a great many times and was in this sea several cruisers. The captain has great confidence in his opinion and prays great deference to all that he says. Indeed, it is generally thought that our skipper pays rather too much deference to his opinions. It was he that pronounced a vessel of Friday last to be a brig without doubt, but I am certain that she was never near enough to us for anyone to say positively what she was, however good an idea he might have. My candid opinion is that we lost a prize that we might have had with ease, but enough of this. And, uh, well, I'll tell you what... Why doesn't Captain Waddell and Lieutenant Whittle just just listen to the midshipmen? You know, <laughs> their, their, their life would be their life would be so much easier. But anyway, so um, yes, some some controversy as to whether it was a brig or a bark. And again, Captain Waddell um, paying a great deal of deference to the opinion of somebody who's already been on the Alabama and has been whaling in these grounds a number of different times. Ah, oh, well, why would you listen to someone like that instead of your your junior midshipmen? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess there was a feeling of vexation and frustration, given that they'd come all the way up to these whaling grounds to catch whalers, and they've they've let a potential one uh, go. And then this is compounded by the fact that over the next few days, things get very dicey indeed. Because mm. if you recall, uh, the Shenandoah is not a whaler. Mm. It is not designed to go into Arctic waters. It's in fact an extreme clipper which is a very well-built ship, but built for speed and certainly not built for pushing its way through ice. And the next day, on uh, Saturday, June the 3rd, there was an enormous rain and hailstorm. And this is actually even worse than snow uh, in these sort of uh, conditions. Yeah, now, now, now what, what does that make, a rain and hailstorm? That makes an ice storm. It, it does. And what, what it's uh, described here by Mr Whittle is that uh, after never seeing such weather at sea in my life, the rain fell as fast as it fell on the sails, ropes, mast, deck, yards, rigging, and it froze into solid ice, and the ship had the appearance of being made of glass. None of the braces or gear would work, and the ship's side was solid ice. Now, he says the sight was certainly beautiful and grand, but was most severe. And I imagine if your ship is pretty much coated in uh, solid ice, it's going to make it very difficult to do anything. Well, although, you know, it, it, it would look like something out of a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale or, or you know... Yes. Maybe, uh... He does say that we're very much blessed because uh, the quarters for the men and officers are most roomy, comfortable and warm and that they have a little stove in their wardroom that keeps them snug, and it's really only the uh, watch officers and quartermaster that are the only parties much exposed. But it does mean that it's very, very difficult for them to do particularly anything 
at the moment. Yes, and it would, I think, also negate all of the, well, a lot of the advantage of their Cunningham's painted topsails, which, um, if you remember, we, we talked about it in another number of previous episodes, where you can basically just put up, put your sails up and down from the deck just by, by hauling on, on various ropes. And if these ropes are frozen, frozen solid, then that, you're, you're not going to be, not going to be able to do that. Um, yeah, now, uh, Mitch Mason also, uh, gives a weather report on this day. And um, so, so yesterday it rained all day long, a drizzling rain that froze as fast as it fell. By night it ceased, but left everything covered with ice and sleet. All the sails were stiff as boards. The yards and masts were sheathed in ice and ink an inch thick. All the rigging was the same way. A beautiful but dreary sight. Isn't that exactly what Whittle says? <laughs> I, I, I think they're pinching lines from each other. And I, I bet, given that I think the, the, the lieutenant probably speaks a lot more in front of the midshipman than the midshipman <laughs> does in front of the lieutenant, I think Mason is pinching a line from, uh, from Whittle there. Uh, now, again, you're saying that um, it's nice and comfy in the wardroom, but uh, Mason says, I had the watch from midnight to four this morning. It did not rain, but there was a heavy fog. And when I came on deck, ice was in sight to leeward. Small blocks from 15 to 20 feet in diameter continued to float past as they had done all day yesterday. So they're going through icebergs in the fog. Um, yeah, that could possibly not end well. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you've been... but, but what they are very cleverly doing is they are not underway at the moment. Yes, so okay. uh, they're not going to hit them with any great speed or force, which I believe is the problem the Titanic had, uh, wasn't well, it? Yeah, the Titanic did have that problem. So, so again, about half an hour after coming on watch, we came upon a long field of ice, not more than 100 yards in width. Oh, so only 100, 100 metres or so of, of sea ice. We passed through this without any difficulty, although some of the cakes were apparently very large, from 30 to 40 feet either way, but this is not considered large for ice. I, I like that description, by the way, a, a cake of ice. It, it, it sounds like so much more comforting than... A baby iceberg, yeah. And, you know, uh, what happens next indicates how quickly things can change because Whittle writes about, and this is on Sunday, June the 4th, that he went to sleep feeling content the ship was lying to under the lee of an immense flow of drift ice and and that this was perfectly safe. Okay. Unfortunately, at 3am, he was roused by heavy thumping. Not what you want to be roused by in Absolutely in not. And he jumped on deck and found that uh, the ship had ranged into an immense flow of ice, um, which, without our knowledge, was on the lee bow. So um, he doesn't actually criticise, but he does mention that Lee was the officer of the deck and had all the watch. Oh. And I'm just wondering, you know, if that's, if that's a veiled criticism of, hey... Why didn't you notice that gigantic ice field? Well, I we think, had I just think gone he would say because it's night time in the fog. <laughs> I, I think we got Nathan's answer to that because. Um, yeah. Anyway, they then pretty much spend um, the next three hours, the remaining of the watch, using belaying pins and every possible means of beating the ice clear of the braces uh, so that they could get their sails working again. And um, to try and get out of this enormous uh, field of ice. And 
the only metaphor I can think of, it's 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 like in you know um, Star Wars or Star Trek, where your ship ends up in an asteroid field, isn't it? And you've got to get out. It's it's a bit like that. Yes, except you don't have uh, a robot. Yeah, you know, giving you probability estimates. Telling you what the odds are, yes. <laughs> Telling you what the odds are. So this is actually a very, very dangerous time for the ship. It is not designed to be in the ice. It cannot afford to be caught by the ice. It can't even really run into uh, ice at any particular great speed because it would be ripped open, and all of a sudden they've found themselves in the middle of an ice field. Hmm. For Mr Mid- Midshipman Mason's view on this, so... Um so again, now, I think I think up on deck. So um, at one o'clock, we entered another field of ice, which proved much more extensive than the first. So, so at this moment, Lieutenant Whittle is downstairs asleep. It's, it's, asleep it's, and content that as, all is good. Asleep. It's great having these different perspectives. I, I, I think really, um, ships at sea should make it compulsory for every every person on board to keep a diary because it makes <laughs> it so much easier. One hundred and fifty years later. So anyway, um, end of editorialising. So uh, the captain came on deck and ordered the yards to be braced back, but this was a difficult task for everything was frozen stiff. The, blo- the braces and blocks were so covered with ice that it was impossible to budge them. We had to take them to the winch, get watch tackles on them, send men aloft to beat the ice off them, etc. So it was four o'clock because before we could brace the yards around. Three hours hard work. In the meantime, we got our fenders and mats to protect towboes. So I, what, what they've what they've essentially done there? They're called punch mats here by Whittle. Okay, okay. They've more or less put things out over the front of the ship to protect the bows. Mats, mats. Because um, I, I, well, I'm thinking bits of carpet or, yeah, or something like that. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking if, if you know if a Titanic scale iceberg comes along. It's not going to go. Oh, they've got the, the, t- the Titanic actually had very nice carpets on board that <laughs> could have solved it. <laughs> so they've, they've pretty much put these out on the front because they're terrified that the uh, this ice, though rotten, was very large and might rip off our uh, stem copper or stove in our bowels, which would be bad. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were really, really concerned at this point because the ice was closing in. And that would pretty much be not just the end of the cruise, but the end of them if well, this happened. Um, of course, that there was the, the the famous case of the the Erebus, the um, uh, the, the English ship that was um, some some years before this actually caught caught in pack ice when I believe it was trying to um, get through the north the northwest passage. passage. Yes, and um, that that was made even more horrible. So the the ship was completely trapped in ice. And at that time, they still um, soldered um, tins of food shut with lead. So the the crew of the the Erebus promptly got lead poisoning, went insane, and ended up started starting to eat each other. Although you, you can you can sort of raise a bit of a issue as to whether it's better to be insane when you start having to eat your fellow sailors. Yes, after they became icebound, they um, then started to head off as well in different directions to across the pack ice. Yes, in, in but, a matter strongly suggesting they were completely insane. Yes, because, for example, I believe one of the uh, lifeboats they were tugging over the sand was carrying the captain's harpsichord, for example. I think if you're insane in the Arctic and about to die, then I think having, having the harpsichord, it, it, I think that's a thoroughly... 
Uh, actually, that's a thoroughly insane thing to do. It is, and especially since I'm sure that the um, the keys on the harpsichord would split and rot in the uh, in the extreme cold. Yes, yes. This was in 1848. The era so was disaster. That long before, and, and was, I'm sure it was, would still have been a warning tale for sailors everywhere as to what happens if you get caught in pack ice. The the, the difference is that uh, Franklin's expedition, the two ships that were involved, were actually designed to go up into the ice and. Uh, and even even be bound there if if need be. Yes, whereas the ship and Doer is designed if it gets caught in pack ice to be to be crushed and um, yeah, crushed and sunk and uh, everyone die horribly. Everyone die, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. So they're in a really desperate strait here at the moment. Fortunately, um, even though uh, Whittle says the ship was so locked up in the ice, we scarcely thought it possible to wear because they needed to turn the oh, ship around. They to turn around exactly. And thank God just ahead was seen a small, clear, or comparatively clear spot about 40 feet square. This was our only chance. And they managed to uh, hoist the sails with great difficulty and wear and slowly get round and get through this tiny spot. Um, So pretty much the whole cruise hinged on the fact that they needed to get the ship through that, to thread the needle of that tiny spot of ice or I think this would have all um, ended probably even worse than uh, and it did for Franklin and his expedition to the Northwest Passage. Uh, I, I, think, I think you really have to, to, to prove a statement like even worse than it did for Franklin, <laughs> because it ended pretty badly for Franklin. But um, but uh, anyway, so, so yes. So, so he claims that the mats did in fact save uh, their copper. Yep. And he even says, I would warn anyone coming here to have a good supply. Okay. Um, so this is interesting because this hasn't come up in the uh, in any of the stuff I've read before. No. So I'm not exactly sure what these mats are and why they had a lot of them. So in my mind, they've actually run into the very comfortably uh, furnished officers' quarters and ripped up the carpets, but that's probably not the case. Uh, well, well, that they did capture a ship back in the Atlantic, didn't they, that was carrying lots of furniture? It was carrying lots of furniture. So maybe among the furniture there were some, some nice rugs and, and maybe the crew of the Shenandoah decided, oh, some rugs, they will look nice. Yes, yes, throw that killum over the front. That Ottoman is going to save us. Yes, so uh, fortunately, after they got themselves out of the heavy ice by, uh, by 8.45 the next morning, which would have been very bright by then, um, they were very, very lucky that the next day was warm. Okay. And that actually uh, aided what they were doing by um, drying out and, and melting. Oh, of course, of all, all of the ice that was up in, the, up in their rigging, yes. Yeah. Big problem about that, of course, is that, um, as Whittle writes, the ice has by falling made every man look for his head. Because you could imagine there would be all these uh, ice icicles dropping from uh, different points. Well... That, that, that is a problem with an ice storm. Um, everything freezes up, and then when it melts, uh, I believe on on, on land, um, branches then tend to fall and, uh, and hit people. So possibly on at sea, you'd have exactly the same thing with spars and, and yeah. So they've got a, they've got themselves a problem. They've realised that they really can't go any further north. But at least not in the Sea of Okhotsk. At least not in the Sea of Okhotsk, and. Uh, as he says here, Whittle says here, the sides of our ship are so thin and no way suited, like the bluff-bowed and sheathed whalers, that we can't go into the ice. And this leads to a uh, another conundrum for the Shenandoah. And what was that conundrum? 
what do we do next? So, uh, in normal circumstances, the captain would then uh, tell the crew what was going to happen next, but uh, Waddell is not an ordinary captain. Oh, he doesn't have a conference, does he? He has another conference. Oh, oh, no, no. Yes, so he he once again calls together uh, the uh, officers of the, the ship, I, I suspect Midshipman Mason was not included because he gives um, uh, no description. Oh, okay. yes, that, that could that could very well be. Yes, as a as a uh, I guess a indication of just how much Captain Waddell valued Midshipman Mason's opinion. It is noted here that the consultation consisted of the lieutenants and masters, Lieutenants Chu, Lee, Scales, and uh, Whittle were of the same opinion that they should not go any further north. Okay. Uh, Lieutenants Grimble and Master Bullock thought we should go in, and the captain agreed uh, we're not going north. Okay, okay. Um, Now, it says here that the captain uh, decided to arm and secure himself against any future censure... Oh, okay. he would talk to uh, he would talk to the officers about about what to do next. Okay, so given that you know basically he's kind of turning tail and, and running away from the ice, that he wants to make sure that that's not going to bite him on the bum later. Yes, yes, and uh, so of course the the big problem is that's why they went up here in the first place. Yes, and now all of a sudden uh, they're not going any further, but. A very, very good point is made, and that is the ice is really bad. So if the ice is really bad, there's probably not whalers up there either. Good point. So that is the the rationale for for going south. Okay. So that means, I believe, that they're going to have to head back through the Kuril Islands Mm -hmm. and out of the Sea of Okhotsk. And I do hope that's the last time I have to say that. Yes. So there are two plans here. One is we could capture another whaler and crew it and send it off doing depredations. Now, now excuse me, I, I believe that was, because uh, you were telling me earlier, that was um, Lieutenant Whittle's plan. And, and what was his wonderful idea as to who should command that ship? Oh, what a guess, yes. Uh, Mr Whittle thinks he should be put in oh! command of, uh, of this captured what whaler. What a surprise. Yes. What a surprise. Uh, interestingly... That idea does not seem to get any play for the rest of the journey, as far as I can tell. Oh, so, well, at least he ran, he ran it up the flagpole and it, and it got shot down. Yes, yes. So uh, the, the Shenandoah is now going to head south, and they're going to be uh, looking for whalers that are going up and out okay. of okay. the whaling so, grounds. So they're not trying to go into the whaling grounds, they're trying to intercept them going in and out. Well, look, I think if, 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 if that's a choice that you have, then, then yeah, um, that, that's what you have to You've do. You've got to work with the material you have. Yes, yes, yeah. And they, they're in the Arctic with the wrong ship, so, you know, they can, they can finish up. Right, talking about finishing up, um, this has gone really quickly, but this has been yet another episode of Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the World. As always, please leave comments on our website, um, shenandoahdownunder.com or on our Facebook page, which is also... Shenandoah Down Under. So for another another exciting week, this has been uh, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Tally-ho. And ahoy.